under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Oh, welcome to it. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Hour. Tongue tied. Too much coffee. Alongside me is Troy. How you doing, man? I'm all right. How are you? Pretty good. You got it without the words. You just got the instrumental. Just the instrumental. That bass is just right in the pocket. It fits me well. That's not my drink. About to drink Greg's apple juice, ladies and gentlemen. And that's not a euphemism for anything. He left his apple juice. Uh, so, in the news, you were mentioning, Troy, when you came in, uh, this thing going on in Britain, Theresa May giving an ultimatum, right? I, I don't know if I'd call it an ultimatum, but she gave Russia until 4 p.m. tomorrow to respond. And you mentioned that they did respond. However, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, they uh, essentially, uh, this Peskov, um, Putin's right-hand man, kind of the communications guy for Putin and the Russian Federation, he said uh, this was an ex-British intelligence official. I think the guy was a double agent, but it's an ex-British intelligence officer. Uh, it was on British soil. Russia has nothing to do with that, and certainly not the Russian leadership. Okay. Okay. I mean, but with this stuff, it's like, what are you going to do? What is Theresa May going to do in 24 hours? I'll tell you, we were talking about this a couple weeks ago when I was in a tizzy about Russia and how they're just a joke of a country, and I was like, you have to respond with force, and you were like, no. You respond through the back channels with diplomacy, and Britain can... They have some big banks in London. Yes. And they have a lot of Russian oligarchs that funnel their money through London. Yes, I think you can hit people that way. Seize the assets. Mm. Deport the embassy people. Yeah. Shut it down. Mm. Shut it down. Continue to close Russia off from the rest of the world and let them fester. The only problem is that they seem to be perfectly happy festering, and they have a huge natural gas pipeline that feeds most of the EU. So it would be really hard to get the EU on board, let alone the fact that Russia has an alliance with NATO. So that th- that makes things kind of weird. So she can't respond militarily. She might no. be able to respond with, you know, MI6. I See, I would flood the country with, like, memes that utterly mock Vladimir Putin. I would flood the media of Russia. And I'm, it's a joke a little bit. I'm joking, kind of. But if you could somehow take over Russian television and broadcast something for a little while, I'd do that. Be mm-hmm. like, hey, we can do this. Yeah, that's what I was thinking on the way here, actually. That would be really cool if all of a sudden just like everything got interrupted and it was like, hey, everybody, this is the United Kingdom. How are you? 
<laughs> we're good. We're just doing this to let you know that we can do this, and we're sick of it. We're sick of putting up with your stuff. Anyway, here's a diagram of a micropenis. You'll see here <laughs> on the head, there's this little thing called the frenulum, and, and there... That's actually Vladimir Putin. Yeah, that's the guy that you voted into power. That's the guy who's continuing to seize more power. No. That's the guy who keeps the oligarchs happy and you sad, but he feeds you a steady diet of propaganda. Now, sing along with me, gents. Bouncy, bouncy, ooh, <laughs> such a good time. Bouncy, bouncy, shoes all in a line. Bouncy, bouncy, ooh, do a somersault. Bouncy, bouncy, ooh, bouncy, bouncy, ooh. Every time I bounce, I feel I touch the sky. I can't hit that note. Otherwise, I'd have been right there with you. I know, yeah. Uh, are we crumping? Are we crumping today? Uh, we're crimping. Crimping. Okay, we're not. Like, we can't crump. Look how white we are. Well, I mean, they're they're white crumpers. Well, I mean, crimping. Crimping. Yeah. Crimping is where it's at. For folks who don't know, it's called the mighty boosh. Look it up. Or don't if you're easily frightened or put off by a British sense of humor. That seems to be filtered through the scope of a lot of different types of weird drugs. Yeah, it's it's dry. It's dry. It's a little psychedelic. It's a little odd. But If, if you're familiar with Old Greg, because that was popular <laughs> was. in the States for a while. If you're familiar with Old Greg, that is from the TV show, The Mighty Boosh. They have something called crimping. Howard! <laughs> the funk. Uh, yeah, I got watching that the other day. Andrew has all the seasons on DVD. Oh, does he... Did, did he end up ripping that uh, the live show in Brixton? I think so. We haven't watched that. That is so good, though. I love it. Yeah, those guys, they do, and it's something I wish I was capable of. Maybe I am, just haven't tried. But a, sh a show that works as a radio show, that's how the Mighty Boosh started, is a BBC, BBC show. But it works as a radio show, it works as a television show, it works as a live act. Like, what they do is just freaking brilliant. They yeah. have it down. It's a I, it's almost vaudeville, their yeah. live live act. Screwball humor at times, mm -hmm. like messing with the audience, just doing things that are. Um, I don't even know the reference, but it's da da, where they just yell at the audience for no reason. It's, just, it's freaky stuff like that. But then it, I watched the uh, the Balo episode, where instead of Balo the gorilla, who's their friend, Howard is in a gorilla suit, and he gets taken to monkey hell by accident. And so they have to go save him. And the uh, the monkey king, the king of monkey hell, is about to throw them into the pits of fire. And the way they get out of it is they insult his hair. Like, every ever since I was a child, people have made fun of my hair. If I wash it, it gets too dry. If I leave it, it gets too greasy. And that's what I've been going through with my hair. I don't know. It looks good today. It does? looks good today. It feels luxurious. Mm -hmm. Like it, I feel proud of it. I grew it myself, and it, all it took was time. Yeah. Yeah. You ever... Well, we've already talked about this. You only grow a mullet. I, oh, I don't... I, I like my hair short. Yeah, it looks good. It's... I don't, the weight, mm. I feel like, would take a, a, a bit to get used to, and it's just not something I, I'd like to attempt to get used to. Yeah, I've, I've gotten used to it, and I, I think it looks good. I, I like the... I like the look. I like. I'm trying to get a beard to come in. Yeah, I see. I see. You got the uh, caterpillar game strong up yeah. top here. The mustache. The stash plays. Mm -hmm. Oh, the stash plays. Oh, the mustache plays, man. Yeah, yeah. All the ladies love it, and some of the guys. 
but I don't explore that. Uh, let's. Um, Regardless, though, is that not the best feeling in the world yeah. when a guy comes up to you and he's like, "I just want to let you know you look good." Why'd you go into that voice? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I was, I was attempting to signal that it was a gay guy. Right. Right. And there is a stereotype there. Yeah. Like, I mean, I kind of fit the stereotype sometimes, always wearing my scarf and flipping it over my neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's okay, though. It's fine. It's fine. Now, um... But it's a huge confidence booster. Right. And speaking of confidence boosters and throwing your scarf over your neck, what do you think about this recent breakthrough with North Korea? Where they are still trying to pressure for denuclear denuclearization, yes. and they are confident that they can reach an agreement? Yes. I think it's all just North Korea's playbook. Aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. Wait until it gets so bad that people are dying and you can't handle it anymore, and then they come to the table. And then two months later, it'll be back to that other thing. The, the key here would be to somehow make the denuclearization lasting, because once they get their hands on the research that allows them to be a nuclear Korea, that research isn't going to go away. It's tough to put that genie back in the bottle. Right. Well, and then not to mention the nuclear issue is one. Say that gets solved. Huge breakthrough. Huge news. And people should celebrate. You still have to deal with what's developed over decades between North and South. Like how South Koreans view North Koreans. And there's such a cultural divide now. It's a huge cultural divide. How could you ever have a reunification? I don't know. It's just, uh, it's difficult difficult to figure out. Apparently uh, Schwarzenegger to sue Big Oil for first degree murder. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What is that about? He's going to sue Big Oil companies for killing people. They literally killed somebody? or I'm not sure if he's suing them for like a dangerous site. You know, kind of the there will be blood kind of thing. Right. Where you're extracting the oil and it's actually super dangerous. Or if he's doing it because the land grabs that they do to get these things end up causing little, uh, I guess, proxy wars. Oh, sure. And it certainly happens in Africa. So what drives me nuts is I got talking with somebody the other night about you know the legacy and history of capitalism. And I'm like, well, first off, that word, capitalism, it's defined in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... We can take whatever definition you want, but if I mean like true free markets, property rights rule, uh, what's happening, say, when Shell Oil goes into an African country, they find oil under some village instead of like if you found oil under your feet in Texas, you're rich. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Like you, yeah, it's your property. You found the oil, you get to sell it how you wish. Uh, sell the drilling rights, these sort of things. Um, if it happens in Africa, what happens is a big oil company goes to the host government, says, oh, we want the rights to drill there, and then they give a little pittance, a little you know, development program to the village. My point of view is no. That's their oil. That village is oil. Not the government that runs the village. That village there, those people own that. They should be able to sell that as they please, or not. But that's not how it works over there. There is no semblance of property rights. Well, how far back does it have to go? And who 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 claims to own, at least in the United States, if you own that land, yeah. there's a way to determine your ownership. Yes. But if it's a village, that could be temporary. 
It could be, but I think some of these villages go a ways back. I don't know. I, I think it should be the wealth should accrue to the people that are actually using that land. I would consider the owners the people actually there are using it. And I think that could be proven. And That's why I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah. Well, my general point of view, and I always like to come back to her, a woman named Deirdre McCloskey. Uh, whenever I hear people talking about capitalism or how we got so rich, uh, let's make one thing clear. There's a great new show on the History Channel called... Uh, Frontiersmen, the men who built America. It started off with Daniel Boone. I think they're going to like Lewis and Clark next. And there is a lot of exploitation and war that went on in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s in the United States and everywhere else. The Native Americans really got screwed over. Mm -hmm. uh, African Americans who were brought here really screwed over. There was a lot of exploitation. But that is not why we're rich. Fighting, that's part of it. That's not really why we're rich. There's, that's one theory, is the West is rich because they exploited people, imperialism, slavery, and the like. Another one is uh, more of a right-wing version, a standard Chicago school. It's capital and savings. That We got rich because we had a bunch of capital built up over time. You save it, and it grows exponentially. And this professor, I mean, five or six PhDs, has really studied this last 200 years and it's a riddle she says i'm hesitantly answering it here's kind of what i think but it's never seen before in human history it's such a complex confounding event i she's even hesitant to go this is the definitive answer but she says to like the exploitation theory okay take all the wealth people stole whether imperialist in africa or slaveholders in the united states and take that money that they stole at that time redistribute it back that's like a 30% betterment, 30% increase in wealth. Whereas in globally, the increase in the last 200 years has been 3,000%. In the U.S. and Western Europe, it was been like 40,000% increase in wealth. To give perspective, there were times in history where there was a, a bettering of conditions, a betterment. Uh, say in like ancient China or Rome, like the height of the Roman Empire, there was like a 100% increase. So she... She points all this out to say something happened in the West. And it's not that different from, like, say, Rome and ancient China. Yes, imperialism was going on, slavery was going on. But while all that was going on, something else was happening, creating what she called the great enrichment. Well, in, in Rome, it was roads, wasn't it? Roads. Um, aqueducts yeah. or, or the refinement of aqueducts and aquifers? Yes, some innovation, uh, yeah, clean water, roads, and trade routes from having that sprawling empire connected by those roads. And that did increase like 100%. Ancient China had the same thing. Uh, but she says something else was going on. And it wasn't just capital, like brick on top of brick and a bunch of people to do the job. Because, again, Rome had that. Ancient China had that. At the year 1700, the most, the wealthiest and most technologically advanced nation was China. They had, I think, the beginnings of gunpowder, and they already had created locks and canal for and uh, canal building. Like they were fairly advanced around 1700. But it's the West that jumped up. And what she said was going on is, despite the exploitation, despite more capital and innovations going on, it's the way the ruling classes or the ruling caste started to consider the middle and lower classes. Instead of considering them as serfs, as peasants, as slaves, more and more people said, no, if we leave those people alone and let them do what they want in terms of trade and commerce, treat them with 
a sense of liberty and equality, a sense of dignity, then we'll all get rich. And that's what's that's part of what's going on. It's really two things. It's innovation, but it's not just a particular it's not just the steam engine. It's more ideas having sex and then dignity in the political social sphere. And those two things together, she ventures, is what allowed us to become so rich. That's interesting. Because the, the argumentative side of me wants to say, well, it's still not good enough. Right. And I think she, um, she might agree because she wrote three books, each about a thousand pages. Right. And the first one was called Bourgeois Dignity. And the whole point of the book is for the sort of sneering, laughing left academic who she's friends with. She works with them in academia. Who says, oh, the, the middle class, the bourgeois person's a moral person? Right. And she had heard that so often that she really wanted to make a defense. And it was quite the eloquent argument, backing, using history, using modern-day references, uh, that the bourgeois class or the middle class or the townsfolk pretty well expressed the seven virtues that the West has come to own. The four cardinal virtues, I guess, anytime you start listing, you can get in trouble. But prudence, temperance, justice... And courage, and then the Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. Mm-hmm. And she said that combination allows for, they're not always correct. Sometimes some people lean more in the direction of too much prudence. And that's how she critiques sort of free market economists and critiques the sort of Gordon Gecko greed is good. Like, no, just rational self-interest will not get you a good functioning society. Right. She's like, no, you also need temperance. You need to have some sense of moderation. You need to have a good sense of justice, what is right and wrong in the uh, social sphere. And you need to have the courage of those convictions, and you also need that hope and love and faith. And she defines faith in a funky way as identity, like really knowing where you come from. And it is uh, similar to what Alexis de Tocqueville talked about with the early American uh, experience, that these communities, he thought democracy would work because it wasn't like for France where it's built out of resentment towards the ruling class and then all this infighting. It was more like, no, all these people kind of work the land or have the same conditions, and they very much are hopeful that they can improve their stead if they look out for one another. And so I, when I hear people critique capitalism, I'm like, there's plenty to critique. If you mean like what we have today, which is sort of like, the managerial state that is what we were talking about with Africa. Like, the corporation gives the land rights to the oil company and to hell with the people actually living on the land. Right. Which creates all sorts of piracy problems and people trying to steal from the oil company almost like a Robin Hood way, but then they're not as nice as Robin Hood. They don't actually give it back to the people. They just enrich themselves. It creates a nightmare. So when I look out today, I'm like, well, we've never really had what I would consider true free markets. Though, maybe that's just an ideal, and we'll never actually get there. But if you compare that ideal, in my mind, to, say, the ideal of socialism, I would go towards the capitalist ideal. Right. I, For me, with capitalism, is I, it, it can't just be free, because perhaps I just can't wrap my mind around it. But it's there's a lot of bad faith in, in capitalism. There's a lot of immorality. There can be, yeah. Not can be. There, 
I'm talking about today. Yeah. With our capitalism. Oh, well, boy. They're 110% is. Yeah. How do you fix that? How do you stop these things from happening? Now, like, I get it. They got to they gotta make money. They're doing what they can do to make money. But they're purposefully screwing over the people. I would say. Like, like the, the water rights in, in Flint. Or the, right. the way water is in Flint, Michigan, or Nestle in Canada, just draining all of that water for pennies on the dollar, and then upselling it. Right. Like, well, who who fixes that? Is it the government? Well, I uh, think it. It can't fix itself because the selfish person who owns those things is going to say, "Hell yeah, I'm making great money. I'm going to keep doing this." Well, I would say it does need to be a function of courts or government. Yes, and it, there's a unique, fascinating history in this country. Uh, with environmental protections. I'd say those examples you gave, like with the Flint water, not as familiar with Nestle and what's going on in Canada. But it's not a strict enforcement of property rights. And I'll put it this way. There were several cases when industrialization was happening in the United States where, you know, granny goes out and hangs her laundry out to dry. And there's a smokestack a mile or two away. And she comes back to the laundry hanging out to dry and there's soot on it from the smokestack. So she goes and she has an injunction filed in court. And not every time, it wasn't perfect, but a lot of the times the courts would say, you're polluting, you're littering, you're on her property. In the same way, if I walked over to your yard and dumped my trash on it, if you incinerate it and throw it into somebody's area, that's the same thing. And so they told these companies, you have to stop. And what comes along is people saying, oh, that's going to hurt our industrial power. And so, through central regulation, they say, well, these big corporations can pollute to this level. And that changes the goalpost. Now we're arguing over how much are big companies allowed to pollute, mm-hmm. rather than, though that's that person's property, you can't pollute at all. And maybe if somebody owns property and they're polluting onto their property, you can make a deal. You'd say, well, I'll hang my laundry somewhere else or defendants away. I'm more than willing to have you pollute on my land. Sure. Just pay me. I mean, there's all sorts of deals you can make out of that. Um, I think it is a failure of government. And I really... The West and the United States is one example, but I think it hurts the so-called third world the worst. Places like Haiti, a lot of places in Africa, where you have no semblance of property rights whatsoever. And so it allows for governments... Like in Haiti... I was fascinated to learn that, like, people can live on a plot of land, build a house, and you'll show up and it's like a shanty. You're like, why haven't they built up more capacity why if they've been living here so long? Because at any moment, without any due process, a bureaucrat can come along from the Haitian government and go, we're taking that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's in the U.S. that happens, but it's eminent domain. You have to pay the people, fair market value, all these things. There, no, go kick rocks. We're taking your stuff. So there's not much incentive, number one, for the people there to build up what they have. They might, but then it gets taken away. And there certainly is an incentive for people to invest millions and millions of dollars there and stay put because they don't know what the host government's going to do. And it's, I mean, it's it's fairly turbulent there in terms of how they run their own government. It, it, it changes quite frequently, if I'm not mistaken. It is. And now critiquing more of the right-wing way of thinking about this, that all you need is property rights and everything to be fine. I, I don't think that would actually work. I think you do need the other virtues, to your point about immorality. 
there are things that people get away with because they have some privilege from the government, but there are also people who just do terrible things that the government might not necessarily be able to solve. Like, I was uh, listening to Glenn Jacobs. He's running for mayor of Knox County, Tennessee. Okay. You might know him as Kane from the uh, WWE. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant guy. I believe he's a libertarian like myself, but he's reasonable. And, you know, he wants better investment in the schools. He wants... He wants also to create a network, a volunteer network, which is pretty freaking smart on his part of any sort of project we can do together very quickly through a volunteer network, let's do that. Now, if there's something else we need public funding, fine. But he's looking at it as a way of, I don't want to just be mayor, I want to bring this community together into acting in certain ways, whether it's something as simple as filling a pothole or uh, helping somebody out who maybe has cancer. But he brought up the opioid crisis. They asked, what's the biggest threat to your community right now? He said, it's the opioid crisis. And, but his point was, this probably cannot be solved by the local government and certainly not the federal government. That there might be ways where we can change how things are prescribed. Unfortunately, what's happening right now is they're cutting back on how much is prescribed. And they're also saying, we, we're not going to prescribe it, go to a pain management doc. And so people are cut off and they deaths are going up because people are getting cut off and they're going to the black market right they're turning to heroin and heroin is now getting mixed with fentanyl which yeah. is just an insane drug it really is and there's there's like two levels higher of fentanyl uh, it's like mo fentanyl or <clears throat> pro fentanyl or something like that and it's like in terms of ratios of what can kill you like if if you if you looked at them it, they, it gets infinitely smaller of what can... It, anyway, it's crazy. It's what killed my idol, Prince. He apparently was getting black market opioids for his hip. And it was labeled like Oxycontin or Percocet. What in the pills as he was getting, he thought that was it. And there was fentanyl in it. Yeah. And so it's... What's happening, and this is what Glenn Jacobs suggested, is this cannot be by tweaking laws around how drugs are regulated and prescribed. That might be somewhat part of it. But thinking that's actually going to be a solution will not cut it. It has much more to do with schools, civic organizations, nonprofits, families. It's sort of that, it sounds like platitudes, but if you actually have people looking out for one another going, why are you taking these things? And you remove the illegal stigma and sort of say, no, we're going to get you help immediately. That This is the sort of problem that people don't want to admit is a wicked problem that isn't solved by a changing of a law. It is actually solved by taking personal responsibility for you and those you directly love. But personal responsibility only takes you so far. It does. You can only look out for yourself and your neighbor. But you can't really look... I mean, I, you would assume that if everybody's looking out for themselves and the neighbor, therefore, the community would be better. There's a ripple effect, yes. But in, in rural locations, the ripple does not go very far True. because there's only so far that it can go before you essentially run out of people and you have more space than people. True. So, I agree with you completely, but there's got to be a way to get these companies' fingers out of our government. Yes. With how they either pass laws or with how they determine what needs to be done either at the federal level with the FDA or with how, how they legislate these things. Because it it was a lot more than just these companies going to doctors and saying, hey, we got this great drug here. 
You want to prescribe it to everybody. Matter of fact, you prescribe it, we'll give you a little kickback. Because they also went up to the government and they were like, we can't legalize pot. Here's why we can't legalize pot. Right. You know? We got to continue to fight this drug war and we're going to give you money to help you fight this drug war as long as you keep turn a blind eye to what we're doing to these communities. You know? Well, and now they're, and it's, it's one thing when it's something like cannabis or weed that was, has long been illegal, and we're, no, you can't legalize that. They are now going after chromatin that people were taking instead of taking prescribed opioid medication. Is chromatin. It was classified as an opiate by the FDA and the DEA. And I think Alabama outlawed it, for instance. It was being sold at gas stations. Oh, okay. And so, essentially, the government's come along saying, no, that's an opioid. You can't take that. Where I'm not aware of a lot of people dying from chromatin. And if there are, I'd imagine it's a lot less than Oxycontin. Well, that, that could just be down to the numbers. The yeah. sheer volume and quantity of Oxycontin, Oxycodone, and all the other opiates and opioids that are out there. There's, there's a whole lot more of them than there is of chromatin. Well, I just I think a big part of the problem is the FDA is such a bottleneck. I think what happens right now is they not only do a safety check, which I guess all these drugs people are hooked on past a safety tech, or check before they got, you know, put out for market they're, no 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 they're they're getting punished for it now but but when it was coming out the the companies intentionally lied mm-hmm. to these regulators it's not addictive is this synthetic heroin yes it is but i'm not going to tell you that right. no one suggestion for reforming the <clears throat> fda is all they do is their own testing on safety like potential side effects all that and what actually costs a lot of the money and a lot of time is effectiveness testing. So if, I mean, what difference does it make if you actually test safety and side effects? Let people figure out effectiveness on their own. Let doctors and people choose that. Right. And then and stop it with this bottleneck. There are crazy things going on with stem cells. And st- research into how stem cells sometimes injected intravenously. And it was happening for a little while in the United States, and then the FDA cracked down, saying once you manipulate those stem cells from somebody's own body, that's now considered a drug. So we have to go through this whole process that will cost billions of dollars. So those people move to the Caymans, uh, to Panama, uh, all sorts of places. But if we could just loosen up some of those rules, only check for safety, allow people to figure this thing out... That's the wicked problem with regulation, especially regulation from a central point. It gets captured by people with a lot of money. That's how it always works. They talk about money and politics ruins everything. I agree. It's also the other way around. Imagine you're a business bringing in millions and billions of dollars a year, and you try to not lobby. I'm not going to lobby. I'm not going to ask for any special privileges. Then you're asking to get screwed. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just that people with money buy power. People with power extort those with money. Yep. Or people who have a competing business want to screw you over by using the government. And it's, it's, a, nat, it's a balancing act between how do we regulate these things without it easily being captured from a central point. Well, that's why, and this goes back to the original argument with cap- capitalism. There's no, there's no impetus on the self to sort of self-police. Right. Like, there's a lot of companies out there where I was like, where I would say, if I'm running them, man, I'm not going to do that. But these companies, 
They've got no... There's nothing holding them back from being like, oh, yeah, screw, screw this village or screw this particular area of land. Or even if it's just like an intellectual property thing that, like Facebook, yeah, they're getting money from the Russians. They don't, they don't care. Well, and they just want the money from the Russians. There's no reason for them to stop taking money for that, for advertisements and things like that. So it comes back. We're taking another turn here. Back to the, that Kane fella. Yeah, going who's, who's running for mayor. If you self-police, if you if you teach in community, and you learn how to be moral, I feel like things could get, could get better. However, then you have, especially the people that have problems with religion. Then you have the religious side of things, and then that whole power structure rears its head. Right. That power vacuum. It's almost like anywhere you turn, power can corrupt, whether it's a big central government or a local board or a local church. I mean, you always have to... That's the unnerving thing about these sorts of problems. They never end. You always have to be on the lookout. The way I would solve a lot of this regulation stuff, I would get back to common law courts. I would get back to maybe diversifying courts to where you actually had multiple judges who are basing their decisions off good precedent rather than central regulatory bodies who are easily bought. And wrong. These local elected judges, correct? Well, I would want to expand it beyond that. But here, we got to hit a break. Okay. We've been talking for too long. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Fun discussion today. Bouncy, bouncy. Mm. We'll be right back. Joey Clark. Rick Flair? Yeah, that's Rick Flair. Thank you for that, Rick. Man, Fastlane. WWE Fastlane was great last night. That was a lot of fun to watch. WrestleMania is next, baby. I know you're not big into wrestling, but I if I can get you to come watch WrestleMania, it's going to be fun this year. I was playing Kingdom Come Deliverance. Nice. Yeah, and I had to, I had to hunt down. This takes place in the very early... Uh, 15th century, late four, uh, 14th century. Video game wise, we've been playing Forza. Ah, okay. The new one that came out. I had to hunt some Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> I did. They were. I had to hunt some heretics, but they were basically Catholics. That's awesome. And instead of turning them in, I told them to flee. Nice. And they said, no, I don't want to flee. God tells me I should confess my sins. And I said, no, God's giving you the chance to escape. You don't have to be a martyr. That's right. Yeah. And they fleed. And then the, the vicar, well, he and left. That actually leads right into kind of an example. Who think like I do, and I, I think it convinces me. When you separated church and state, not the state outlawing church, not any particular church being upheld as the one and only church, but when you said people can freely pick their religion and organize their religion how they choose, what you get is a flourishing of religion and a lot less war over it. You still get fighting and debate, right. but you get a lot less actual blood and violence. Mm-hmm. And I think the same model can work with a lot of the economic sphere and other things in life. 
that if you decentralize certain aspects of life and you say the only rule will be you can't use force yourself and you can't defraud people, that generally is a good place to start from. Well, how would... Okay, so when, when you have that separation of church and state and people can create their own religions or, or choose whatever religion they want to, what ends up happening is that at least... Everything I've seen so far, even with Satanism, they all espouse the same virtue, that golden rule. Mm. Do unto others as you would have do unto yourself. If you decentralize things from an economic perspective to allow more growth and freedom to choose how to go about doing things, the difference is they don't all boil down to espouse that golden rule that you see across every religion across the board. And that... I don't know if it's a problem, but it it could lead to a lot more problems. Well, it, let's take it from purely economic point of view. I read something the other day. If you deregulate housing, and and by that I mean you loosen up zoning barriers. Like San Francisco is a huge problem with this, uh, where housing costs in big cities are sky high, mm-hmm. where the wealthy can afford them and the middle class, upper middle class can afford them, but you have extreme inequality in big cities because of this. Right. Uh, that if you loosen up those zoning regulations, you get 10% GDP growth, maybe 1% a year. You get not just, it not only helps people find more housing for cheaper costs, it creates more growth. We actually would create more to do for people out there. But let's also take Montgomery. Like, we've had the mayor sitting that very chair you're sitting in. Todd Strange. This is a comfy chair. This is a, a nice, nice chair for my back. If I were chair. sitting in that other chair, mm. I would be I'd be grumpy grouch. I'm glad you're sitting in that chair. Mm-hmm. I'd be a sourpuss. Bitch, yeah. I live in a trash can! Instead of a gigglepuss. Yes. And the number one question he always gets asked is traffic questions. Like, when are we going to repave that road? When are we going to expand that road to more lanes? Blah, 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 blah. And the mayor, when it's a local road, goes, we're getting right on it. We're doing the research. It's going to cost this much. We can take care of it. Right. But more often than not, he has to say, ah, the state has that road. Ah, the feds run that road. And he has to go through a multi-year process just to get them to move to assess something. Right. And so he's in a position of, I can't, I can't do. Hands are tied on that road. Like uh, Carter Hill. Uh, they repaved a part of Carter Hill going past Mulberry Street, and that was the city. They got it done in like a month or two. It was, And the guys were great. They'd wave at you each day. The city took care of it very quickly. But Carter Hill now in front of Alabama State going to, I guess, Norman Bridge or South Court Street, it's still a mess. Because it's, it's run by the state? Run by the state. Okay. And it's not to say the people who work in state government or the Department of Transportation are bad people. They're not. It's just that the system moves slower. It's not your direct community right in front of you. Right. Now, have you seen the... I, I can't remember where this was. It might be England, where anytime there's a pothole in the road, this guy goes with, like, spray paint, draws a big um, junk. I don't know. Male membership. Oh. Like an outline of a... Yeah. Something phallic. Yeah, a phallus around the pothole to get the authorities to go take care of it. Right. And it's amazing it works. (laughs) There was this, it was was really popular over the weekend in the UK. There was this city that has its own Twitter. I'm I'm assuming Montgomery has its own Twitter account. I imagine. I I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But this city has its own Twitter account, and these people took a picture of a pothole. And they were like... And they sent it to that Twitter account. And the city was like, okay, we'll be right on it. And they sent this poor schmuck. 
out there with a measuring device because they have it. If it's like in this measuring device, if the pothole is not deep enough, they don't got to worry about it. They don't got to fix it. Because it's not going to hurt any tires. Or right. Like that. Yeah. So this pothole was so big that he only measured the bottom part of the pothole because it extended out. And he was like, see here? And he took a picture and they posted it online. He was like, see here? It's, it's, it's well within regulation. And so people, people then just hopped on Photoshop and just had a blast with proving how that poor guy was wrong. And in classic British humor and British fashion, every time it was addressed either to the city or they would name that guy specifically uh, i'm just going to use the name brian they'd be like dear brian see this brian brian right here is where you're wrong and i've, I've specifically <laughs> sectioned this part out here just to show you that you're measuring the wrong spot brian okay brian yeah. you're wrong brian well but i mean we're asking the old question in a way the big question of why did why are people immoral and like why do people steal the boat Having a good time out at a party in college, and somebody steals the boat. Not only did they take the boat, Joey, they took pictures on their adventures with the boat. They took the boat, and then they rubbed it in our face via pictures. Then they posted it online, and they tagged our names in it. By the way, the boat was our name for our giant rubber ducky we had in college. This was a huge rubber duck that was... I don't even know how we acquired it. I'm upset. Wait, did we steal it? I think we did. Oh, crap. See, but why do people steal things? It I, happens. Yeah. And that's just a stupid... Well, it's not stupid. I'm just angry that we don't have the boat anymore. Do you know what the boat spawned? For like six years, every year, I got a rubber duck. <laughs> My mom got me a rubber duck because she thought I was into those. That's where and, Secret Peter came from. Yeah. Secret Peter, Magnificent Mark. Yeah. We got these awesome little rubber ducks. I wasn't super into them, but it was also at the same time, it was like, thanks, thanks, thanks boat. Mom. And the mom. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, mom. Mom mom comes in the clutch. She gets the best gifts. She does. But it's, uh, let's get back to our point. That's, yeah, you brought up the boat. Yeah, I know. But that's th to make it emotional. People do steal crap. Mm -hmm. They steal things from other people. I don't think that will ever go away. Like I said, this is the type of problem that you don't solve by passing a law. You always have to be on the lookout. And even if, say, you reorganize your community and things are going great for a decade or two, when it comes time for decade number three, you better be on the lookout. Things tend to go to crap. Was it entropy? If you're not on the lookout, things might go to crap. I know yeah. that's a poorly applied... Um, Especially with entropy. Yeah. Well, how about this? You, you must be observant. If we're, let's let's just create some rules here. Okay. For the self, and and how to work through life, you must be observant. That can only get you so far. I mean, you you would also have to be thoughtful therein, because if you observe something and you want to fix it, especially if it's something that really nags you, almost like a burn, you would almost want to take a, t a step too far. And yes. Then, then you end up with. You know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king because you take it a step too far with an eye for an eye. So you have to be thoughtful. So you need prudence and moderation. Precisely. And then, in your implementation, it would need to be fair or at least consistent. Because I find that with humanity, we lack consistency. Oh, yeah. Integrity, yeah. Yeah. 
But how do you develop that? How do you develop a sense of integrity? Yeah, I, it, it, it can't be taught in schools, so it would stand to reason that it has to be a familial thing. Yes. Or at least well, but it could a cultural be, thing. It could be some teacher at school makes a difference. I mean, I think it could pop up anywhere. And I hate to sound like the sort of stern father waving his finger, but I think it does come back to personal responsibility. Taking res- freedom to act, but responsibility for your actions. And it got me thinking over the weekend, why do people get so angry and heated over religious arguments, political arguments, uh, certain cultural arguments? Why do you think, especially these things where the average person doesn't have seemingly much control over them, why do they get so heated over, you disagree with my religion or my politics? I think it's because at the end of the day, we're not really talking about these giant systems, though they exist, these impersonal systems. What we're talking about is how you govern yourself personally. And so to see somebody else carrying on and governing themselves in a different way than you, it's a bit of a, I think, a wake-up call in some ways. If you're insecure in what you believe and somebody's acting differently and maybe challenges you on what you believe and you're not used to being challenged and you're insecure, you might get upset. But I think it's a lot at stake that you're realizing it comes down to what each person chooses to believe and not what they say they believe, how they actually act. And so a lot of, like, the personal identity is at stake when we're talking about these things. So it's it's the psychology of reacting to observation. Yes. That it comes back to individual psychology. Now, that grows to how do you interact with your family? How do you interact with your friends? What do you do for the community? It stacks on top of, but if you don't have that foundation of a strong personal belief and here's what I'm going towards, then it's hard to build towards those other things. That's that's true, but at the same time, a strong individual belief can create an adversarial dichotomy. It can. Where, if you're not with me, you're against me. Yeah. On the other side of that coin, though, is that insecurity that you mentioned. But does that come from a place of fear? Partly. I mean, it's it's obviously a very complicated and muddied issue. There's a lot of places where that insecurity can come from, just like there's a lot of places where strength can come from. Well, one guy, and now we only have like a minute left, but one guy I've had on the show, David Gornoski, he uh, is real into the work of Rene Girard, where Girard says that human beings operate in what he calls uh, mimetic desire, that I see something you like, and I like it too. And for the most part, that's great. People copy each other, they imitate each other, it works out. But say we both like the same girl, you fight. And sometimes say we both like the same leadership position, people fight. Say you both are are appealing to the highest possible good, maybe the concept of God itself, but you have a different concept. So you start competing over this thing you have in common, but you don't have necessarily everything completely in common. It's like we both believe in a god, but say the Shiites and the Sunnis don't seem to believe in the exact same one or how to worship him. Right. So it it gets down to, okay, we have all this in common, and people always think, oh, let's find what's in common with one another and things will get better. But uh, sometimes what's in common is actually what's driving you to fight. Well, we solved all sorts of problems tonight. It's interesting that you mentioned memetics because everybody focuses on memes nowadays, and that's what that is. It's memetics. Yep. Well, Troy, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. This flew by. We needed three hours today. Yeah. I I won't be here next Monday. Yeah, you're getting surgery, right?